Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and after my fascinating chat with Philippe and Pedro of Talent Protocol earlier this week, I'm following up with another episode focused on the future of talent. My guest is Hung Lee. He's the writer and curator of Recruiting Brain Food, a newsletter read by nearly 30,000 people interested in recruitment, talent and HR, among other things. He also writes This Week in Recruitment and hosts a popular job board. Hung's worked in recruitment for over 20 years and knows the market inside out, as well as dedicating time to saving his readers time by finding the most relevant and interesting news for them each week. He's a great example of how when you love a subject and spend time really thinking about it, you can create huge value for people while having a bit of fun along the way. We talked about the future of offices, including whether businesses would ultimately all adopt some form of hybrid work, or if there's a possibility some will throw their hat in for a fully office-based or remote future. We also discussed why flexibility is a critical requirement for most candidates in the market and the essential skills we should ensure we're proficient in if we want to compete in the job market over the next five to ten years. Finally, we discussed the importance of becoming an expert in your niche and why to successfully launch a digital content strategy for yourself, including growing a newsletter, you need to combine intrinsic motivation and passion with hard work and a thick skin. I really enjoyed my conversation with Hung. He's a lovely guy, incredibly smart, and I really admire what he's achieved with his newsletter. I receive it every Sunday morning, and I'll add a link in the show notes so you can sign up too. I'd also suggest signing up to my newsletter, Future Work Life, which I'll link to below Hung's. As ever, in the coming weeks, I'll be sharing my thoughts on some of the themes I discussed both with Hung today and the Talent Protocol guys in the previous episode. One last thing, as you'll probably know by now, I'm in the middle of writing my book, Work Life Flywheel, which will be published in January 2023. And I'm pleased to say I'm going to be now sharing the insights I've discovered through one-to-one coaching, mentoring and training, as well as as part of workshops and talks that I'm offering to businesses who are interested in supporting their people to redesign their work lives to successfully combine high performance and well-being. If you're interested in chatting about any of this, please feel free to get in touch with me via my website or LinkedIn. Okay, so onto the show. Here's my conversation with Hung Lee. I started by asking him what he considers the major drivers behind the way the relationship between employment and work is changing. The thinking about it has moved from the periphery to the mainstream. I think all of us have had the shocking change to our working uh, life and that's given us kind of an excuse to really re-examine what the heck we were doing. I think a lot, a lot of us, when we first ha- overcame the shock of having to work from home and stuff, we then adapted to that. And then we, I think, began to realize the amount of sacrifices that we had made that we previously had accepted because we didn't have a choice. We accepted the commute. Uh, we accepted mm. an hour in a tube or an hour in a drive. Uh, there and back. We accepted that we had to to wait to do all our errands on the weekend because we had no time or energy to do it in the week. And all of those things seem like, I think, deeply irrational to us now. How did we ever do this? And of course, we did this for as long as we would have done. We did it for generations. Without the pandemic, we would have continued doing it. But now that we've had this big break, I think we're very conscious of those types of sacrifices and quite unwilling to to, to do them again, which is why I think we're seeing this sort of resistance to the, you know, call to return to to work, all of this type of, I think, clear resistance um, against this. And it's a fascinating period. So I I think our relationship with work has definitely shifted in the sense that we want to rebalance the amount of energy and commitment we give to an employer compared to the, the time and effort we give to ourselves. And we're also in the 
negotiating, renegotiating the sense of separateness that we had, the professional and personal split, which kind of cr- crunched, made both of those experiences quite stressful because you had to get everything done in your eight hour day. You had to get that report in before the boss left and that kind of stuff. And then when you got home, you had to do certain things in this constrained time frame because of the various domestic responsibilities you have. But now, of course, we're finding maybe co-mingling it and giving us the ability to swap in and out might actually be a superior way. So yeah, there's lots of things are in the mix right now and it's very fluid. And obviously you're looking pretty closely at the kind of dynamics within the job market. I'm interested whether you see it really clearly manifesting in the case of the companies, I suppose, are winning out in the war for talent. Is it those companies that are entirely flexible in the way that they um, allow staff to work or is it as is often reported more a case of inflated wages determining where people tend to end up what, what are the considerations and variables at play I think I can give you direct first-hand evidence that flexibility does create increasing interest in job market. I mean, you read about it, I read about it, and, and have it, you read loads of surveys saying, yeah, the topmost thing that people care about when they're looking for work is flexibility, which basically is code for, look, are you going to allow me to work from home at least some of the time? But I actually run a job board, and the job board tells me <laughs> the data exactly can track who, who, who applies and who doesn't. And I can tell you that there's probably about times... 10 increased uplift in terms of the applications to jobs that are remote anywhere compared to location fixed. And that tells me that basically there's people who want to work, but they're very conscious that they don't want to go to a situation where their lives are suddenly constrained in this way. It's a big decision when you think about it. Imagine if you have your life, you have control over when you work, how you work, you can organize where the dog walking, you can organize where the kids are and all this type of stuff. All your life is configured around this agency you have. Uh, but then you consider a job that actually does then require you to suddenly commute like two days, uh, two, two hours a day, needs you to travel 40 miles or 50 miles to get to this place. Maybe it's an eight hour day. Sometimes you've got to work harder. Suddenly you're not back until eight, nine o'clock or whatever. Those are huge compromises. People are just simply saying no. So yeah, it's a big wake up call for a lot of companies that are very tied to the concept of getting people into the office. It's not universal. It has to be said, I think the more we learn about it, the more obvious that there's a generational sort of attitude, shift, generational variance in terms of whether office is a good or bad thing. I did a couple of interesting conversations last year with the Gen Z sort of population they were very keen to get in the office because they're very young right. in their career. Their, their home life isn't under their own control. Typically still live with parents or on a flat share, a busy flat share with loads of people. They're working effectively in a very poor shared office, i.e. Their, their flat sort of, sort of kitchen table or something. That's suboptimal. So they mm. want in the office. But I think people who are experienced that kind of have, have moved their lives to a point where they have a bit more control over their home circumstances are much more reluctant to, uh, to give up the flexibility. Yeah. Let's if we just play out the next couple of years, hypothetically, of course, because neither of us can see into the future. I wish we could. But if we assume that some advantages which are presented by companies that are offering flexibility, some maybe that goes away when every company just realizes it just needs to be part of their offering. So then things return to some new normality, right? Which is presumably there's the option to work from home, but also the option of having a dedicated office. We found some sort of hybrid model on average in which we cater for the younger members of staff and maybe the more experienced team members get to share their experience. I wonder at that point, what kind of dynamics or what might be the next competitive advantage which businesses have 
Yeah, I'm going to actually add some complexity to the, to the premise yeah. because I think that the idea that there will be an equilibrium is probably true in the sense that after a year or two, there will be some decisions as to how these companies will operate. But I do believe different companies will make a, a long-term commitment to operate in different ways. So in other words, I, I think there will be companies that will absolutely commit to on-premise only and they'll say, look... We're just going to have to take it. I want everyone in. That's the company I want to run. That's fine. There's going to be some companies that will go remote only, say, let's jettison the office. There's no such thing as an office. We get rid completely. And then we have different flavors throughout those two extremes. I think what will happen is that the market will self-select into those different buckets and will end up going towards companies that will probably be clearly labeled in job adverts, what kind of company you are. Mm. And you'll say, okay, sure, I actually want to have some element of office, but I want generally to be able to work from home. Great. This is a company that's saying three days in, two days off, or two days out. That's perfect for me. I'll do that. So I think... There'll be different flavors of companies. There'll be companies that will start, I think, the the days in which they select to be in the office will be a factor. You might even have, oh, we're a a Tuesday to Thursday. And those that will suit people that want to have a big weekend break. We're a Monday, Tuesday, Friday. And then you'll see people that want to have a break in the middle of the week. And and, and those things, I think, will be clearly labeled. So I think what will happen, the the competitive advantage will literally be more a case of sorting through which kind of employer you want to be. Where there will be an advantage is for those uh, employers that recognize this and very clearly state this is what they are and then they'll stop dealing with false positives they'll end up hiring people that understand fully what it is that they're getting involved in the retention will be better they will lose staff that are not compatible with this new way of working but the staff that are left will be compatible and they'll evolve their cultures that way so i think where there's competitive advantage will be the companies that make that decision first and early rather than oscillating backwards and forwards that we are seeing. Even the big boys are doing that. Microsoft's mm. saying, yeah, come in the office. Then they say, no, let's push it back. And this oscillation, I think, is hugely damaging. We just need some courage to say, this is how we're going to do it. This is when we're going to do it. We're sticking to it. That's going to be a huge game changer. And companies, I think, will eventually get there. The advantage will go to be to, to those companies that are clear and fast on that commitment. I know lots of business talking about challenges around skills. So there's a, there seems to be a skills gap of some type where certain skills are more in demand compared to the supply in the market. So I'm thinking about from a talent point of view, if you were to look at it objectively from the you know, number of applications per, per placement, for example, I wonder whether there's certain skills that talent broadly individuals could identify, you know, where they might be able to focus their attention to increase their value to employers yeah. and clients over the next few years. What, what are the kind of key areas where we see that gap and therefore an opportunity? I think ultimately some obvious ones, right? Your digital fluency is step one. Your ability to smoothly interact with these new technologies are not really new, but two years ago, it'd be crazy to think everyone was able to just jump on a video call and, and do it comfortably. But that level of fluency is required. We can't have people struggling with that tech, which by the way, has a DNI issue because obviously it requires suddenly people to have the equipment and the, the, the space, the audio control, all that kind of stuff, a DNI factors we, we have to think about. The fluency digitally, number one, no question. The ability to operate asynchronously, I think is very clear as well, which ultimately changes the way in which you communicate in the sense of how do you push information and get information back it needs to be more thorough. In, in an asynchronous way of communicating, you need to be more clear, 
if you're asking someone for something, what it is you need this person to do. Because what you don't want to do is go through this tortuous backwards and forwards, possibly with people in different time zones, and then creating a huge time lag as to when this thing can be done. So your ability to basically ask questions in a written form that is very clear, that makes the uh, person receiving the question you know, fully able to understand what it is you want and able to deliver it or able to communicate that they can't deliver it and be absolutely clear on it. Again, that's a skill I think a lot of people lack because you just need to look in your own inbox right now and you'll have to, there's a lot of interpretive work, okay, still, isn't there? Like, what does this person want exactly? Like, how yeah, okay, yeah. can this person get to the point, not clear where that point is? All that stuff, that's a weakness in this. Like, you need to be able to be not only succinct, but also be able to give the other person the ability to respond effectively to you if you're making a request. And, and yeah, I guess align with that, like how do you build relationships asynchronously? Again, there's another thing that is very alien to us. When you think about even pre-COVID, which is only two and a half years ago, most relationships were built synchronously. It's very difficult to build an asynchronous relationship. We need to be talking and you know, vibing and all that type of stuff. That's how we know. But let's say asynchronicity becomes the default. How are you actually going to be able to do that? It's one of the reasons why this push towards transparency has become a thing is because transparency is the way in which you build relationships in an async environment. You have to be very transparent because that then creates a trust with a person who isn't able to interrogate you in that moment, but they can see, oh, Ollie is doing this, or yeah, I can see he, Ollie's got this type of thing going on in his life, or all those types of things, they're not hidden. But I need to be able to consume that without you actually being there in order for trust to be built. So transparency is one of those things which, again, happens naturally. Perhaps nothing happens naturally, but it happens more easily to some people. But others, especially the, the folks that had previously had a very sharp line between professional and personal, I think they will have to renegotiate their own thoughts on how strong they want to maintain that division, because I think it will damage their ability to build relationships in this uh, remote-only asynchronous world. Yeah, there's loads of useful stuff there. But one thing I got was... Interestingly, the quality of our written communication has got to really improve within this context. And and it's not just a, not necessarily about creative writing in this case. As you said, it's about changing the way you communicate. But I know you've got a really successful newsletter. I'm just thinking, when you conceived of that newsletter, did you have a real purpose behind it? Did you think, I want to grow this community and develop a community around it? Was it just an opportunity to keep in touch with a set of prospects or customers? How do you think about the way you write that newsletter and the, and the format it takes? You know what? There's, there's actually two, I've realized there's two divergent like origin stories to uh, recruiting brain food, and I can no longer understand which one is true. Uh, <laughs> so it's one of those where I think maybe both of them were true. So let me give you both of them. Firstly, it was initially thought to be, oh, here's a good way to, it was a hedge against GDPR, is the truth. It was okay, a, a recruitment technology business at the time, which involved emailing a lot of prospects. And I thought, okay, that's a pretty reasonably successful way in which I was generating these some revenue. But then I re- recognized that GDPR was happening down the line i thought you know what maybe I, what i'm doing is illegal <laughs> or will be soon in which case i need to hedge against how do i make sure these channels of communication are still open i thought okay what i'll need is a double content email i'll do that zero branded not branded to to, to the the product just make sure i'm I tell the people i'm doing this see if they're up for it but then mm-hmm. at least opens up a channel of communication i can still talk to those folks so there's the first origin story could be true the second origin story which i think is also true is basically i needed it for myself so basically, the, the information universe got too big, right? It's like ever-expanding information universe. It's like completely overwhelming. 
I was overwhelmed and I recognized there was some really good content out there, but it, it took you like, you had to go through 10 crap bits of content to get to the one good bit. And, and over time, I just started collecting those good bits. And perhaps I'm one of these people that likes to tag things and likes to create taxonomies and things I can later retrieve. Before I knew it, I had a really good taxonomy based on the topics that I cared about, which is recruiting, HR, world of work and stuff like this. And it just occurred to me that if I had this problem, other people might also have this problem. How can I make it easy for them to get access to this? Because I've already done it. There's extra, no need for anybody else to do this. And I just thought, look, newsletter might be the way. Let's publish it, stick it out there. If people can get value off it, then great. If not, then you know, no worries. And that's basically another way in which I think recruitment <laughs> might have started. Yeah. <laughs> and what, how do you think about your niche within that? But loads of us are going through this massive work-life transition, as I describe it. Whether or not we've decided to work in a different place or whether we're looking for a new job or whether we're thinking about going it alone. There's a lot of people thinking about what's a way for me to build up my expertise, build up my reputation and actually connect with people who might be interested um, in working with me at some point. And I, I think a niche Defining your niche is a really clear way to start because you can't be all things to all people. I'm wondering, as you mentioned a few topics there, recruitment, HR, the world of work, how do you think about your your role in the in people's lives? And I wonder whether you've got any sense about why people sign up to the newsletter and then stay with it. Are they in recruitment? Are they HR? Or are they coming at it because it's just a referral-based thing? And you know, here's a guy who's great at synthesizing lots of information and put it into a digestible format. Yeah, I think the this is where if, if you're going to go down a path like this, my advice uh, to people who are thinking about this approach uh, would be that you have to have a an intrinsic motivation behind it. So in other words, I, I do call it a North Star, like just something that basically gives you some directional feeling because there's lots of things that are going to happen as you do this that might just take you away from that direction and that can be that you'll eventually get lost and you'll stumble down and, and, and you'll go down so the north star for recruiting brain food is simply that the world has got too big and i need to just cut it down i need to just find some good content that's basically all i need to do and that really keeps me on the straight and now i hold fast to the idea that what i'm doing is valuable for me and therefore it possibly is valuable to others and and that's evidenced by people signing up so for the people that do sign up i think what they get out of it is look i don't they, these are operational recruiters and hr people right so they actually have jobs um they you know they, they have a boss on their case saying do this do that ultimately means that they don't have time uh, to free wheel across the internet like i might have and find all this stuff so what i promise to them is to say look if you sign up to this what i'm going to do is show you maybe 10 things this week that you wouldn't have found that are useful but are definitely interesting for your career and what you do and that's basically it um and it's you know free uh it doesn't cost you any effort to get in there there's no interview you just put your email in you get it in your inbox you like it you don't like it that's all good so it's very easy to, to try before there is no buy so you can go and try it <laughs> you don't like it you can ignore it going back to your question on niche though that is an important factor this is where again the intrinsic motivation needs to be there because i don't think you can do this unless you are intrinsically interested in the topic area it's it's simply if if you're just jumping onto a bandwagon, let's say, you think, oh, NFTs are the next thing. Let's do a newsletter on that. 
that may be good for a while, but you will eventually run out of motivation if you're not genuinely interested in this world. And the audience will be able to tell. It's something weirdly intuitive and weirdly artisanal, if that makes any sense. So, you know, you go sometimes to uh, a craft beer place and there's some like uh, a weird dude at the back and he's totally overly enthusiastic about this particular brew or whatever. And you can just tell yeah. that this guy is well into it. Like he's totally into it. And therefore you can trust his anger because this guy's got a depth of knowledge that can only come from uh, a passion for the work. So uh, that's totally different if you went to a supermarket where you just simply get someone who's giving you a six pack. So I think this type of uh, creator economy really is rewarding people that are genuinely passionate about their thing. You just got to find what that is or hopefully you would already know it already. At this point, there probably is something that you you do if it you know if they didn't pay you would you do it that is a good sign right brain mm. food didn't make me any money for like first two years it didn't pay me but i still mm. did it because it was actually quite good fun so yeah. that is the thing that you should be guided by i just wanted to ask you one more question actually community it's i think an important aspect within some creator economy pursuits and i think a lot of certainly around a newsletter i know that it takes a while to build that list up. And I think it can be a slog. You mentioned that the intrinsic motivation. It's a slog at the beginning if you look at it purely from the point of view of trying to build subscriber numbers. But then there's certain you know, events happen where suddenly they spike and then it becomes sort of this exponential growth. And I think, I don't know what your count is on your subscribers, but I guess it wasn't a smooth trajectory upwards. It probably hit a certain number and then suddenly it was a lot easier to, to for people to discover it. So I'm just interested how you cultivate community. I know you've got your Hall of Fame. I wonder whether that, again, was an sort of intentional idea to build a community aspect in it or it just, again, something that happened organically. Yeah, I think community is very important. It, it's actually, if you look at how modern modern marketing is done, you can certainly see the smarter brands are understanding that old school marketing, where it's like broadcast out to as many distribution channels as possible, has limited effect. What you really want to do is create conversational spaces uh, where people can interact with your brand with a bit more agency. So in other words, it's almost like saying, here we are, here's a space we've created for you. You can come in and talk to whoever you need. We're curating this space. The smart brands are doing this. And I thought that brain food always needed something of this type. I was very conscious of the fact that I was, as a newsletter only, it was a broadcast only scenario, one to many, which is great at one side, but why shouldn't these people also talk to each other? So I, I thought that's a bit weird that, that it's only a, this type of broadcast me- mechanism. Let's find a way in which these people who are obviously enthusiastic about the same things I am, they should also be able to talk to others. I shouldn't be the do- bottleneck here. So it's been an ongoing project to try and create these, what I call conversational spaces where people can move in and, and have this chat. So I do a video live stream on Friday, bring through live on air. That was an attempt at a conversational space. It was like, okay, literally let's create the damn space and have people to talk about it. Turned out at the time, you know, this was pre-COVID, people weren't too confident about coming on screen and no one turned up. (laughs) And so it turned into a more of a traditional podcast, but it's still open, it's still live. And I still call people from the audience on screen if they're happy with it. And I think probably now that we're very used to video, it becomes more likely that people uh, don't need to 
to you know put their face on or anything in order to come on they're just happy to come on so yeah there's an online community the hall of fame is one attempt there was a chatbot on another attempt i'm going to keep throwing community efforts at, at it because ultimately you want to give a variety of these spaces for your audience to discover they may not all want to be in the same place in the same manner so you want to be able some people might want to do audio only for instance or some people are much better at chat or some people want to play mm. a game i see my role as basically trying to create these spaces so they can come in and, and connect with other people of like mine yeah brilliant loads of great stuff in there thanks very much very welcome ollie great to uh, to be on the show and have a chat with you man thanks for listening to my conversation with hung lee as i said at the top Check out links to his newsletter, Recruiting Brain Food, and mine, Future Work Life, in the show notes. Also, if you enjoyed our conversation, make sure you subscribe for more discussion on themes related to the future of talent and work over the coming weeks and months. Next week, my guest is the management editor of the Financial Times, Andrew Hill. So make sure you tune in to hear his insights about how businesses are responding to the ongoing changes in how we work. Until then, have a great week.